please turn in your Bible with me to John 16. Um, just a reminder that we had skipped ahead a few passages in order to keep in line with Easter. So now we're going back into the book of John. So we today will be in John 16, verses 4 to 15. Please read with me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you, re you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you asked me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Friends, let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the Lord Jesus and we thank you for the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We pray this morning that as we learn more, that we would also experience more and that we would do so for the sake of your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. As we look back in John chapter 16, we see that Jesus is concerned for his followers. He's concerned that they will not be able to withstand the persecution that is coming. He's concerned that they would be tempted to fall away. And we share that concern. We're concerned when we look at our culture around us today, when you look around the fact that the Western world is changing at a rapid pace and that Christianity no longer enjoys its privileged position that it has had for the last few hundred years. Gone are the days in the West of celebrated Christian leaders. Gone are the days when the Bible is lauded in the public arena. Gone are the days where prayers are offered at public assemblies and are truly representative of the people in the seats. You look around the culture today and you recognize the tone has changed. The legislation has changed. And if you follow Jesus with your life, you will be viewed differently than the culture around you. And so as you look to the days ahead, you might be tempted, Christian, you might be tempted to say, I don't know if it's worth it. Because it's going to get harder. And the pressure will 
indeed grow. The pressure to follow Jesus or to deny him. At school, it'll get harder. (laughs) At work, it's going to get harder. On the sports field, it might get harder to follow the Lord Jesus. And even within your own extended families. And this may bring some of you to the position where you might be tempted to turn away from him. And if that happens, if that pressure indeed mounts, then know that you're in good standing. Because in many ways, you will stand now for maybe the first time in the tradition of the disciples. And when we look back to John 16, we see that Jesus is preparing them. He's preparing them for the fact that he is going to die that he's going to raise again and that he will ascend to heaven and that over the course of their experience in following him, he is the one that has experienced the brunt of the ridicule and the shame and the scorn and the persecution. But when he is removed, the followers of Jesus, his disciples and really all of his followers, they will be the ones that will now stick out as significantly different than the culture around them. And they will feel the pressure. Christian, you need to know as we start John 16 today that many in the world are going to hate you in this life just like they hated those disciples. And many in the world hated those disciples because they hated Jesus. He reminds them of that reality just in John 15. And he tells them that this is what you're supposed to expect as you go through your days. And in chapter 16, verse 1, he says, I have said all of these things to you to keep you from falling away. When you have clear expectations of what's going to happen, you can navigate those expectations appropriately. And in the midst of all of that bad news or difficult news, there is shining very brightly some good news. Jesus, as he prepares them, points to the fact that Christian, even though the cultural sentiment toward God and his people is changing, there is an invisible supernatural work that is happening. And it happens through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity that we've been singing about this morning, the one who is eternal in his nature with God the Father and God the Son of one essence of different personhood. The Holy Spirit, the one that is probably the most neglected to be talked about of the persons of the Trinity, and in many ways, the one who is mysterious, perhaps greater than the others. But this spirit has been prophesied about long before the coming of Jesus. In Isaiah, and Ezekiel, and Joel, we see prophecies about the Holy Spirit. And in Ezekiel chapter 11, the prophecy says, Thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone, from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them and they shall be my people 
and I will be their God. One of the markers of the people of God is that God gives them his spirit. Jesus himself tells about the coming of the spirit in John chapter 7. Some chapters earlier than this, he stands up on the feast day and he cries out that if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And now he said this about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. And so now we come to John 16. Jesus is going away soon. The Spirit is coming in a more permanent sense soon. And Jesus says, even in the midst of all the difficulty that you are going to receive, there is good news for you, Christian, and there is good news for the world around you because the ministry of the Spirit is a continuation of the ministry of Jesus himself. And it's to our advantage that Jesus goes and the Spirit comes. John 16 is divided into two very simple parts. Part one is the ministry of the Spirit in the world. Part two is the ministry of the Spirit in the Christian. Two simple parts, and most of this time is concentrated on the ministry in the world. You see the headlining statement in verse eight. Look at it with me. He says that when the Spirit will come, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. This is what the Holy Spirit does in the world. He convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And then, in verses 9, 10, and 11, he clarifies what that means. But we have to start with the idea of convict. The Holy Spirit will convict the world. What does that mean? Well, to convict means to bring to light something that's in the darkness, to expose something that's hidden, and even to prove something to be right or to be wrong. God supernaturally works in the Holy Spirit to show the world, the people of the world, their need for a savior. John 7, 7, Jesus testifies that the works of the world are evil. In John 15, 22, Jesus says that the world is guilty of sin and therefore has no excuse. And now we see throughout the whole gospel of John that Jesus functions in this role of clarifying those works of evil, the guilt of sin, and he contrasts it with what it means to be a person of God. And so in some ways, when you look at what Jesus does in the world, he comes right down the middle of the world and he divides it into two parts. And he contrasts those two parts in a number of ways. He talks about light and darkness. He talks about those who are in belief of him versus those who are in unbelief. He contrasts those who are followers which, with those who are part of the world. And he refers to those who are forgiven as the righteous. And he contrasts them with those who are unrighteous. What we see in the ministry of Jesus is a dividing of the categories of people in the world, those who are God's children by faith and those who aren't. 
And what we see in the ministry of the Holy Spirit to the world is a continuation of that division of those two categories with the goal of convicting, exposing, making clear so that people would see their need for their Savior and they would see the glory of the Savior. That's important to know that the Spirit's at work in the world convicting all the time. Because some people would rather go through life with the old saying as their motto, ignorance is bliss. (laughs) Because when you say something like ignorance is bliss, you say, I don't want to deal with complicated things. (laughs) I don't want to deal with painful things. I'd rather just go through life and just take on the next thing as it comes to me. But you know that ignorance isn't bliss. You know that the motto doesn't hold true. You know that it's actually just the opposite. It's the furthest from the truth. Ignorance isn't bliss when your car starts to make that noise that you cannot identify. And so you say, I don't know what that is, and I keep driving it, hoping that it will correct itself. It never does. Ignorance isn't bliss when you go to the mechanic and what was a simple and inexpensive fix is now a very expensive fix. You know that ignorance isn't bliss when you find that your child has somehow picked the lock to the medicine cabinet and is playing with those little colorful pills like Tic Tacs. Ignorance is not bliss. You know ignorance isn't bliss when you find out that that nagging pain in your body for the last number of weeks or months is actually a cancer that is raging through your system. Ignorance is not bliss when it comes to important things. And some people want to go through life and they want to live in ignorance about the most important things. They want to live in conscious incompetence when it comes to eternity and God and sin and righteousness and Jesus. But ignorance is not a good thing. And so the Holy Spirit works in the world to bring people out of ignorance by pointing them to Jesus. And the Spirit does this through conviction. And he does it in three ways. So look at him with me. Verses 9, 10, and 11 describe what verse 8 means. Verse 9, we see the first way the Holy Spirit does this is that the Holy Spirit convicts the world concerning sin because they do not believe in me. The conviction of sin in the life of a person happens in a couple of different parts. The first is that there is a revealing or bringing into the light something that's been in the darkness. And then when that happens, there's a sense of guilt that usually follows with it. The Holy Spirit reveals sin to people. Sometimes we want to have that revealed to us. Most of the time, we don't. (laughs) I think of the story of a couple years ago, CBS News reported that law enforcement officers over in Lucerne County, Pennsylvania, arrested a man named Mr. Potter. 
They arrested him on charges of burglary, criminal trespass, and theft after he was alleged to have stolen a pot of meatballs from his neighbor's garage. Authorities said that the neighbor reported the meatballs missing after he saw Mr. Potter standing in the front of his house with sauce on his face. (laughs) After the police arrived, they later recovered the missing pot in the street. Police officials were unable to confirm any further details, but without a copy of the meatball recipe or a sauce sample to test the DNA evidence, unofficial sources claim to have verified the motive in the theft of the meatballs, and that motive was sheer deliciousness. (laughs) Mr. Potter was arrested, and he was held on $25,000 bail. It's a silly example, but there are parts of it that ring true. Because many of us try to hide our sin, some of us don't really care if we hide our sin. We stand on the front porch and we allow all of the neighborhood to see because we don't think it's that big of a deal. And even if you are successful in hiding your sin from others, and even if you are successful in ultimately pressing that sin way back into the recesses of your mind so as you forget it, the red sauce stain ultimately leaves its mark. And the Holy Spirit of God shines the light of the interrogation room on that stain, on the evidence of that sin. But friends, this is not simply a damning work of the Spirit. It's a gracious work of God in our midst because the Spirit's work is not merely to condemn, though when sin is highlighted, it does. And the Spirit's work is not merely to vindicate Jesus, though his work does. The Spirit's work is to convict and in convicting to point to the true need, the true remedy of that sin, that need that is only met in Jesus. Belief in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins is the response to the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. And we have to pause right here for a moment and just recognize the reality of this incredible, invisible work in the world. Because friends, I can tell you after being gospel work for 20 years that the story after story after story of the convicting work of the Holy Spirit comes upon men and women, boys and girls, that the Spirit is not constrained to any time of day, week, month, or year, that this happens in the morning, it happens in the mid-morning, it happens at noon, it happens in the afternoon, it happens in the evening, and it happens in the middle of the night, that people and people and people and people can testify to the fact that the Spirit convicted them to the point of revealing their sin and allowing them to feel the pain of guilt and shame that's associated with that. And in fact, if you're a Christian here today, then you've experienced that conviction of the Holy Spirit at one point or maybe even many points. And if you're here today and you are currently experiencing that conviction, 
or if you experience it in the next number of hours or days or weeks or months, that know, know this, that when you experience conviction of the Holy Spirit, it is proof that God is calling you. And the response, the only response to conviction is to believe upon Jesus, to delay no longer, to cling to the one who can forgive you because he promises to do just that. It's amazing. It's amazing to hear the stories of conviction, as painful as they may be, the joy that follows is infinitely greater. The second work of the Holy Spirit in the world is seen in verse 10. We see in verse 10 that the Holy Spirit convicts the world concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. That's an interesting phrase. How does the work of the Spirit relate to righteousness which relates to Jesus going to heaven to be with God and us not seeing him in life. I think all of us fall prey in some way or another to a lack of appreciation or understanding of what purity and true righteousness really is. We, we want that and it, for moments we strive for that but you know this to be true for you, I'm sure, as just as I do for me. What starts out as the idea for true and pure and ideal good in my life over the course of a very short amount of time is replaced by just trying to be good enough. <laughs> and what starts out as the standard of perfection and righteousness in my life it doesn't take too long for that to degrade to the idea, well, at least I'm not as bad as she is. It's no surprise to you to hear that the world has a twisted standard of righteousness and morality and virtue. Imagine with me that the world functions on a hundred point scale, much like kids do when they take an exam. And if the world functions on that 100-point scale of grading for righteousness, and you take the test, I wonder what grade you would get. We're really good at um, evaluating where other people are on the 100-point scale. And we typically have an elevated view of where we stand in the 100-point scale. We, we might say, well, you know, I really like that woman, but she drinks too much. I'm gonna give her 65 out of 100. And you know, my neighbor is a really, really nice guy, but I know at work he has a foul mouth. 55 out of 100. That guy, he's an ex-convict. 20 points out of 100, that's it. Convicts can't get to 21 or above. And that woman, well, she's an attorney. 10 points, that's it. But for me, you know, I'm not 
I don't drink too much. I don't swear too much. I'm definitely not an attorney. I'm going to give myself about 85 points. I think that's about where I fit on the righteousness scale of the world. And the problem is, is that not only is our perspective skewed, but that the grading scale of society is ever-changing. You know this to be true. You see it all the time. You see it every single day in the news. And you definitely see it during the Hollywood award shows. That 50 years ago, the things that were considered to be righteous speech are now called hate speech. And the things that were called hate speech are now lauded as virtuous speech. And we see a redefinition of categories, and we see pressure from political ideologies, and we see corporation after corporation coming out now to make moral stands based on what they think the values of the public should be, or at least the pressure they're receiving would indicate. And we see mass media trying to define all of these things or redefine what is good and what is pure and what is righteous and to signal all of those virtues to the world. And it can be really confusing and it can be really hypocritical. And the scale is ever changing from culture to culture and place to place and time frame to time frame. But when you contrast that to the message of the Bible, you see that to be in the presence of a holy, pure, just, loving, infinite God, there is a standard of righteousness that is complete and never shifts or changes. In fact, in the Old Testament, Year after year after year after year after year, God's people would offer sacrifices to atone for their sins and bring them back into righteous standing. And the scale didn't change. And that every year when the priest would enter the Holy of Holies, they would tie a rope around his leg so that if he was impure and dropped dead because he was in the presence of a holy God, they had a way to pull his body out by the rope that was wrapped around his legs. And Jesus comes and he sets the standard for righteousness and he gives the ideal in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter five through seven and he in inspiring words helps us to see how we should be living and what we should be striving for and in terribly condemning words says things like, in verse 48 of chapter five, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And so you see that the righteousness of the world's sliding scale, because of that standard, we're not acceptable to God. You can't go to God simply because you're better than your neighbor is. You won't go to God based on your evaluation of the 100-point scale. And the Spirit shows that you need true righteousness. The Spirit convicts the world that the standard by which you and I live right now 
is not the standard that's acceptable to God. But Jesus alone has that standard of righteousness to be accepted by God. And how do we know? Because he is with the Father. He wasn't sent back. (laughs) He wasn't rejected. The righteous Son of God took his place at the right hand of the Father, showing for all to see what true righteousness really is. And here's the good news that you won't be accepted based on the world's standard of righteousness, but Jesus is willing to give you his righteousness. And so the world, convicted of the standard, goes to the Savior. Verse 11 gives us the third of these convicting roles of the Spirit. It says that the Holy Spirit convicts the world concerning judgment because Satan is judged. When Jesus died on the cross and rose again from the grave, he displayed victory over his accuser. When he ascended to heaven, he showed his righteousness displayed. Satan was defeated. Sin was defeated. The consequence of sin, which is death, is defeated. And now Jesus stands as judge over every man and woman and boy and girl, and he stands judge over the cosmos, even judge over Satan. He's going to judge you, and he's going to judge me. And we live in a world right now that wants absolutely nothing to do with judgment. (laughs) The 100-point scale is sliding The values of our time are comfort and entertainment. Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher, told this parable. He said, a crowded theater hosted a variety show with various acts in it, and each act was more fantastic than the prior, so that it created a louder and louder applause and a louder and louder laughter from the audience. And suddenly, a clown rushed onto the stage and it said, I apologize for this interruption, but I regret to inform you that our theater is on fire. You need to leave right away and in an orderly fashion. But the audience thought that he was part of the act. And so they laughed and so they applauded. They thought he was very committed to his role. But the clown again paused and implored them that they needed to leave right away or they would be seriously injured or maybe even die. And again, they greeted him with laughter and they raised their voices in their hands in thunderous applause. And at last, he could do no more. And so he left the building and the people inside were destroyed. amusing themselves to death. Friends, that's the sign of our culture today. Live free, have fun, pursue your entertainment, and die. 
Kierkegaard concludes in this sobering way, our age will go down in fiery destruction, not to the sound of mourning, but to applause and cheering. But the Holy Spirit of God, by convicting concerning judgment, will make sure that there are many who are indeed rescued. That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the world. The Spirit convicts the world of sin, of righteousness, of judgment, and the Spirit does so to point them to what true and lasting life really looks like in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus. And that is good news. It's good news for you, it's good news for me, and it's good news that when the world looks like it's turning really poorly, that God is still at work. But there's more good news. That's found in the second half of this uh, section, and we'll spend just a few minutes there. That the Holy Spirit has a very important role in the life of the Christian. The Spirit is called the helper. The word spirit, paraclete in Greek, means to help, to come alongside. And we see that the Spirit has the role of a guide. So if you look at verses 12 through 16 with me, it says, Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whenever, whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So the Spirit guides Christians into all truth. And the Spirit does this not independently of the Father or the Son, but as you see, the Spirit works in concert with the Father and the Son. What the Father has is the Lord Jesus uh, has as well, and what the Lord Jesus has, the Spirit also has. And so they are declaring the same thing. They never contradict each other, and they point back to the glory of Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, the call to walk in truth is repeated in the book of Psalms. In the New Testament, we see the call to walk in the light, not in the darkness. The Holy Spirit guides Christians into what is true, into all truth. This doesn't mean into every truth about every single subject matter, that you just ask the Spirit and all of a sudden you know how to make your favorite meal. What he's talking about is a guide to navigate the difficulty of life while remaining faithful to God. How do you make your way through? That's important because times are confusing. It's important because the pressure will come to you, Christian. It's important because pain causes you to react in a way that is often not good, healthy, or righteous. It's important because you might be discouraged at what you see around you, and yet God gives you his very spirit to guide you down the path. You might even say it this way, that the world is directed to Jesus, and Christians are guided in Jesus by the Holy Spirit. 
The world is directed to Jesus. Christians are guided in Jesus by the Holy Spirit. If you go to the National Gallery in London, England, you will find some of the greatest pieces of art in the entire world. Paintings, sculptures, and on and on. Da Vinci, Raphael, Vincent van Gogh, and hundreds more. And if you wander the halls by yourself, you will be able to take some things in, some beautiful things, some confusing things. And you will look upon them with wonder and you'll make some observations based on your very limited experience and you will live in mystery and confusion. (laughs) If you pay a couple of pounds and rent one of those little audio guides, you can type in the number and it'll tell you about the painting and the artist and you'll get some factual information that will be impersonal in its way. But if you have a human guide and you walk through one of the best art galleries in the world, you will experience something radically different. You will know where to go. And when you get there, you will look upon this piece of art and you will hear the description of the artist and you will have pointed out to you details about what each part or piece means and you will experience the passion and the vigor that comes with somebody who really knows the truth about these things that has a perception that far supersedes yours and you will have a completely new reality that comes with true meaning as they guide you. The world is directed to Jesus and Christians are guided in Jesus by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's a guide for you, Christian. It points you to what is true and good and right in this life when times are confusing. When the pressure is on, when the culture is changing, when you say, no, no, my political party didn't get in office. What should I do? The Spirit leads the way. This morning as we close, I think about this role of the Spirit in two particular ways. J. Wallace Hamilton, who was a preacher from the mid-20th century, tells the story about a mother cat with a baby kitten in her mouth trying unsuccessfully to cross the busy streets of New York City. And as the cat would wander into traffic, a car would come whizzing by and brushing up against death, she would scurry back to the side. Until a New York City traffic officer saw the cat and understood her plight. And without hesitation, he stood in the middle of the road and he raised both arms high, stopping traffic in both directions. And the mother cat and her kitten were able to cross safely. And they scurried down the alley and they disappeared. And Hamilton points out that the cat had no idea that the authority of the New York City Police Department had been called upon to enable her to get safely across the street. And he adds, I wonder how many times the mighty hand of God raises high to get us safely 
to where he wants us to go. And we're not even aware of it. Friends, that is the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the oft misunderstood, rarely talked about third person of the Trinity of God that directs the world to Jesus and guides Christians in Jesus. Think not less of the Holy Spirit than you do of Christ or of the Father. Gregory of Nazianus says that the deity of the Holy Spirit ought to be clearly recognized in the scriptures. Look at these facts. Christ is born, the Spirit is his forerunner. Christ is baptized, the Spirit bears witness. Christ is tempted, the Spirit leads him up. Christ ascends, the Spirit takes his place. What great things are are there in the character of God which are not found in the Holy Spirit, with the titles which belong to God that are also applied to him. He is called the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, the mind of Christ, the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of adoption, the Spirit of truth, the Spirit of liberty, the Spirit of wisdom, of understanding, of counsel, of might, of knowledge, of godliness, and of the fear of God. This only begins to show how unlimited the power of the Holy Spirit is, and so fear not, Christian, as the world changes around you, because you have the Spirit which is given to you. Thanks be to God for this great, great gift of a helper and a guide. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we need the help and the guidance of your Holy Spirit. We need to be pointed to truth in a world that's confusing. We need to have spiritual resolve given to us when our flesh fails or when the pressure to sin is on or the temptation to deny our Lord is upon us. We need the Spirit because the Spirit gives us hope as the down payment of our eternal future. And we need the Spirit to gift us for the sake of your work. God, we thank you so much for the work of the Spirit in the world. We thank you for the work of the Spirit in the Christian. And we worship you now as we consider that great gift. Amen.